we're re reading from Revelations chapter 21, starting at verse 1 to verse 5. A new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Good morning. It's great to be with you once again uh, down here in Alveston. Uh, it's, it's a delight to be able to come and share and, and open God's Word from, from Revelation 21. What a beautiful passage as we look at what it'll be when God makes all things new. So before we dive in, uh, why don't we pray? Please join me. Heavenly Father, as we hear from your Word... Please open our hearts to receive it with great joy as you instruct us, as you guide us. Please encourage us this day by your spirit and by your truth. We pray this in your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. In life, how great are new things? We, we love new things, particularly when we get something new to replace the old. Like how great is it when we finally get a new car and the old rattling noises coming from somewhere under the hood are gone and the ride is smooth and there's all these new fancy features that you're excited to test out. But even simpler things like a new haircut which makes you feel like a million bucks or a new item of clothing, a new book, or a new toy that you receive on Christmas morning. E even animals love new things. Our pet dog, Pippin, loves chasing tennis balls. And we normally give her the old tennis balls once they've lost a bit of their bounce and shine. But if she gets the chance to lay her teeth into a brand new tennis ball, well, good luck getting it back off her. Because we just love new things. We desire them. We get excited about them because whilst the old can be disappointing, the new promises so much. And this is what we observe in the whole book of Revelation as God has been retelling through vivid imagery history's pattern of the old, of toil, of hardship, of persecution, of burden. But God has also been retelling his promise of the new. And in the final two chapters of Revelation, the final two chapters of the Bible, we see in these five verses, God is revealing this vivid and glorious image of the promise to make all things new. 
and for the church of Asia Minor, who John, the author of Revelation, writes to, who have been suffering persecution under the Roman Emperor, this image of the new must have been all the more desirable for them. Because the old, their current life, it was a burden. Perhaps you yourself are growing weary of the old. An aspect of your life is, it is tiring. It is toilsome. It is frustrating. And you desperately, desperately long for something to change. You long for the new. Well, unlike some of the new things in our world which promise so much but become old themselves quickly, God's vivid and glorious promise to make all things new, it exceeds and it meets our expectations. And as we explore this glorious picture today, we're going to discover two things. Firstly, God's plan to make all things new. And secondly, his promise to remove the old. And so as we dive in and firstly explore this glorious picture of God's plan to make all things new, I want you to see how God's plan has always been and has always pointed towards the new. So let's dive in. The passage begins with John writing what he saw in this incredible vision. He's just received from God. And the first thing John describes, seeing in verse 1, is a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Before John's very eyes, the first heaven and earth are replaced by the new. In what fashion this take, takes place, we don't exactly know. But it is apparent that there's been a, a renovation and the old order of life has passed away, whilst the new order of life has been installed. And John describes something surprising, and maybe odd to us at first, that occurs in this renovation. He mentions that there was no longer any sea. And that is because in Revelation, the image of the sea is symbolic for unrest and chaos. If you've ever caught the spirit of Tasmania across the Bass Strait on a wild and windy night, you know how ferocious and chaotic the sea can be, even making it difficult to walk through the ship as it rocks uncontrollably from side to side. But this image of there no longer being any sea in the new heavens and new earth illustrates the notion that in the new order of life, Chaos no longer reigns. Instead, it will be like looking across the ocean on a calm day when the sea is like glass. There will be precise order and an unspoilt plan in the new. Yet as John looks upon the vastness of the new heavens and the new earth, he then describes more specifically in verse 2 what he saw next. The holy city, the new Jerusalem. As we picture the city of Jerusalem, we might picture a, a mighty city, full of power, prosperity and popularity. But what ought to be at the forefront of our minds 
is that Jerusalem is known as the dwelling place of the Lord. Since humans were banished from the Garden of Eden and more notably from the presence of God when we rebelled against him, we humans had no way to dwell with God, no way to be in his presence because unrighteous, unholy and impure people cannot be in the presence of a righteous, holy and pure God. But God still longed to dwell with his people. And so throughout history, God has been creating avenues for humans to dwell in his presence. We observe this when he entered into a special covenant relationship with the Israelites, which resulted in the construction of a temporary tabernacle, which moved about. That became God's dwelling place. Yet only the priests of Israel could enter into that tabernacle and only under very, very strict and particular conditions. But after many years of travelling around in the wilderness, from region to region, under the reign of King Solomon, finally a permanent temple is constructed in Jerusalem. And because of the temple's location in Jerusalem, the entire walled city became known as God's dwelling place. To the original audience, seeing the image of the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, is much more than an old city being rebuilt. It is an image of God coming to dwell with his people once again. And so when John describes the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down, we don't hear a description of bricks and mortar, but of a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. The image of a bride throughout Scripture and in Revelation is a picture of the church, the people of God, who Christ, the husband, has made a commitment to and has redeemed Many of us know the, the honour and the privilege and the joy of being invited to a wedding celebration. But to be the bride of that wedding celebration, as all the family and friends wait eagerly in the pews, with the groom standing at the front of the room, with a massive smile on his face, fidgeting hands, eyes fixed on the back of the room, in great anticipation at any moment his beautiful bride will appear and enter. And in this vision, John sees we, the church, are that beautiful bride, his beloved, who he, just like any husband, is eagerly waiting for the day when he can dwell with his bride. And so this vision John sees is the welding together of two common biblical images. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, God's dwelling place coming down from heaven. And in the new, God's dwelling place is with his bride, his church, his people who are beautifully prepared to reside with their husband. And in verse 3, John hears this great Voice, this great loud voice coming from the throne, and it is the voice of God. 
declaring precisely this. He says, look, behold, God's dwelling place, or more literally, God's tabernacling is now among the people. He will dwell or he will tabernacle with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Can you see how God's plan of making all things new has always been and pointed towards God dwelling with his people? From eternity past, that has been his plan. But when we picture eternity, when we picture heaven, what it will be like, when all things are made new, what do you picture? What do you get excited about when you think about heaven? Is it about seeing loved ones again? Or not sinning anymore? Or having a new body without aches and pains? Or is it the fact that you get to dwell perfectly in heaven with God forever? Don't get me wrong, those other things are going to be marvellous. But in comparison to dwelling with God, they will be trivial. And so it's worth us reflecting upon our lives now and considering whether we enjoy the privilege of being able to dwell with God now on earth. For instance... Do we yearn to reside with God in prayer? Or are we too distracted by other things? Do we enjoy reflecting upon the glories of God now? Or upon the glories of ourselves? Do we gladly walk in step with the Spirit? Or do we quickly gratify the desires of the flesh? Do we cherish singing praises to our God Or has all enthusiasm in our hearts vanished? Do we treasure reading the truth of God's word or following the false truths of our world? If you're anything like me, then as you reflect upon your life, you're probably stung a little because you can identify countless times when you've overlooked the privilege of being able to dwell with God. Yet, The first thing we have seen in this passage today is that God's grand plan that he is ecstatic about is to dwell perfectly with his people. God dwelling with his people is the culmination and climax of God making all things new and history has been pointing towards it. But before history reaches this climax in verse 4, we read about our second thing. God's promise to remove the old. God's promise to remove the old. And in this verse, as the great loud voice from the throne continues, we see the effects of the old order of life being removed. He declares that he will wipe every tear from their eyes, that there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. Because in the old order of things, which is our current life, death exists. Mourning, crying, and pain exist. But that is not God's desire. God's desire is to dwell with his people. 
throughout the book of Revelation, which is all about the procedures of holiness and purity and the atonement required by the Israelites for God to dwell among them in the tabernacle. In the second last chapter of Leviticus, God outlines the reward for obedience. He declares in verse 11 and 12, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. But in the second part of that chapter, God also outlines the punishment for disobedience. And just like Adam and Eve who could not uphold their own holiness and purity and were banished from the presence of God, likewise the Israelites could not uphold their requirements of holiness and purity either. And they were exiled from dwelling with God. And what becomes of a people who are separated from God because of sin and unrighteousness? Well, they are subject to the old order of things. And in the old order of things, humans are subject to death. They are enslaved to death, swallowed up by death. With the absence of God, death reigns. And where there is death, there is going to be mourning, crying, and pain and as god witnesses this happen to his creation his heart breaks yet he cannot just rid the world of death and make all things new because he is a just god and the consequence of our rejection of our sin is death in hebrews 8 we read that the old covenant which we've heard about in leviticus was not sufficient but rather it was a shadow of what was to come. That is why we received a new covenant, because the first covenant depended on our ability to remain holy and pure, but we were unfaithful. And therefore we could not dwell with God and became subject to this death, which is why God established a, a better, a new covenant one that didn't depend on humans, but on Christ. That is why Christ died on the cross. He who was holy, righteous and pure died for the unholy, unrighteous and impure. So that we who were subject to the punishment of death could be atoned for so that we could receive forgiveness, so that we might be able to dwell with God, a holy, righteous and pure God, once again. And that is why if we as sinners repent of our sin and instead completely entrust in the atoning work and sacrificial death of our holy Jesus, we receive not death, but life. And we receive life because we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in a saved sinner's heart. Can you see that in the new covenant, God dwells with his people once again through the Holy Spirit? That is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says to the believers, Do you not know that your bodies are temples? of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have received from God. This shadow of God's great plan has always existed. Since God dwelled with his people in the Garden of Eden, to the tabernacle, to the temple in Jerusalem, to Jesus coming to earth, to now in the new covenant where the Holy Spirit dwells in a believer. But even though the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, because God has taken away the punishment, the consequence of sin and death, the realm of sin and death still remains. Death, mourning, crying, pain still remain. And this leaves us with an awkward question, possibly. A question I'm sure you've all struggled with. A question most of our world struggle with. A question I'm sure the churches in Asia Minor who received this letter of Revelation are struggling with. Why does God still allow suffering? Particularly towards Christians. Well, your initial response might be that suffering is a a result of our sin. Our rejection of God, our rejection of God's good plan and design brought chaos, disunity, unrest and suffering into the world. Which is true. Sin brought death, mourning, crying and pain. And as long as there is sin, there will be suffering. But Romans 8 also tells us that creation was subject to this frustration, to this suffering, by God. God has a use. God has a purpose, a meaning for our suffering. God has a purpose for coronavirus, for heartbreak, for our frailties and ageing bodies, for our limitations and weaknesses, for natural disasters, for the persecution we face as Christians. The purpose of all this, Romans 8 says, is that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that amidst this groaning and suffering of life, it may cause us to long, to desire, to wait eagerly for the day when the old order will pass away and all things will be made new. Because at the root of our sin and rebellion is an inability to conceive the sufficiency of dwelling with God. Therefore, the groaning, the suffering, the frustration is a massive red warning light indicating the devastating results of being separated from God's presence and a reminder that we are created to dwell with God. I wonder, during coronavirus, have you mourned the death of so many in our world and longed for diseases to be no more? Have you cried over the loss of a loved one recently and desperately desired that death did not exist? Have you seen or suffered terrible injustice and pondered if justice will ever be served? Have you experienced the frustrations of pain, of aches, of frailties and urgently wished for a new body? Have you ever felt alone or abandoned and considered whether anyone at all cares for your thoughts and needs? 
will take heart, my fellow brothers and sisters, because when the new order of life is installed and the old order of life passes away, your dear Father in heaven will gently wipe every tear from your eye. He will comfort you in your mourning and remove every pain from your life. That is why in all circumstances we can wait eagerly with great hope For each sorrow and pain is a reminder that things on earth are not as they should be. But the day is coming when the old order of life will pass away and when he will wipe every tear from our eyes where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That is why the new covenant, just like the old covenant, is a shadow of heaven. Because whilst we see in part... One day we will see him fully. Whilst we dwell with him in part, one day when he makes all things new, we will dwell with him fully and perfectly. That is why in verse 5 of our passage, the one who is seated on the throne proclaims, I am making everything new. And he tells John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And aren't we thankful that these reassuring words were written down? For I think we need to hear them. We need to be comforted and reminded of the glorious picture today. That firstly, God's plan has always been to make all things new. And secondly, he has promised to remove the old. This has always been God's plan, and history has always pointed towards it. And and it is God's plan because God is most glorified when we, his people, are satisfied by him, when we are satisfied to dwell with him. Similarly, you can tell that a book is excellent and captivating when you desire to read it, spend time with it, and never put it down. Likewise, whilst on earth, we can bring glory to God by being satisfied in him. Because this demonstrates our confidence in him and his ability to fulfill our desires. For instance, the church brings glory to God when they continue to faithfully proclaim amidst a tide that is pulling away from Christ that Jesus alone satisfies secures and saves. The introvert brings glory to God when they nervously share the hope they have in Christ with a non-believer. The elderly person brings glory to God when they, through frailties, though frailties hinder them, they still use their gifts to serve God and serve others. The parent brings glory to God when they model with a faithful prayer life that turns and trusts in God in all situations. They model to their children what it looks like to trust God. The teenager brings glory to God when they do not join the crowd and instead hold tightly to the unpopular lifestyle of being a Christian. The single person brings God glory when they use their extra time to disciple young Christians 
and demonstrate that their identity is in Jesus alone and not in a partner. Although we are not in the new heavens and new earth yet, we bring glory to God when we live with the hope of the new heaven and new earth while still in the old. But on that most glorious day, when the old order of things does pass away, and the new heavens and the new earth replaces it, when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven, when God's dwelling place is among his people, when he will wipe every tear from their eyes, when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, then in that day, God will be glorified forever and we will be sufficiently satisfied for all eternity as we dwell with our Creator, our Saviour and our God, who meets and exceeds our every need perfectly. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, in this world we have so many aches and pains and frustrations and tears and pain, and it hurts, and it hurts you, for that is not how you planned and desired it to be. Lord, yet your great plan is that you will make all things new and dwell with your people perfectly. And Lord, we thank you so much for a saviour in Jesus Christ who has made a way for us to be able to dwell with God now on earth, but has made a way when we will perfectly dwell with God in the new heavens and new earth. Lord, help us to live each day with that hope while still in the old, the hope that the new heavens and new earth brings, that we have a glorious saviour that this world needs to hear about, for this world is becoming so comfortable or so used to pains and aches and heartbreak. Yet the only answer and solution is Christ. And Lord, help us in word and in deed to proclaim that solution in Christ. Lord, we, we thank you so much for this promise, for these words in Revelation, for we need to hear them, for they are trustworthy and true. May they comfort us this day and this week. And may we continue to turn back to your word, which is true and which is trustworthy. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks, Brother Jed. I ask the music team to come up. Uh, we're going to uh, respond in song this morning. Uh, to these trustworthy and true words that we've heard from Revelation as we look forward with hope to be able to dwell with God perfectly forever. So let's stand together and sing, We Declare.